With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And welcome into the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us. We are so glad that you have chosen to make us a part of your busy day. And as always, local politics does take precedence here at Tactics. So we're going to talk about a big national story, but one that specifically relates to the state of Alabama, which is the census is in. And Alabama didn't lose a house seat. So that's good news. We're going to continue to have seven people representing the great state of Alabama in the United States House. Now, personally, I would have been perfectly fine with losing Terry Sewell, but that's not what happened, and that's not how that works. And so uh, we are going to continue to have seven seats to represent the 4.8 million people in the state of Alabama. There was a lot of concern that we might lose one because we have had hemorrhaging populations in certain areas of the country, or sorry, certain areas of the state. And because of that, they were concerned that we might be right on the cusp of losing a house seat, but that did not happen. We continue to retain seven seats. And so because of that, we're going to uh, continue on basically the same way that we did for the last 10 years. We're going to have the same amount of representation, the same, same amount of electoral votes, and so on and so forth. And so uh, we kind of just maintained, which a lot of people were worried about. I wasn't particularly worried about it because, yes, we are hemorrhaging population in certain areas, but we are also growing rapidly in certain areas as well. For example, Huntsville, Auburn, that place, you know, those areas tend to do very well. And so I wanted to show you just sort of a representation. This was done by AL.com to kind of illustrate the fastest growing and fastest losing areas in the state of Alabama. Now, I want you to notice, because the green is, of course, the the areas in the, the furthest green, the, the highest growth area in the state, is about a 2.54% increase, and the lowest is a negative 2.36 decrease. And you'll notice that most of the areas that are growing rapidly, your Lee County area, Auburn, Opelika, but the places of biggest growth are actually right outside of Huntsville and right around Mobile. And so those are the areas that are really increasing in population. And the majority of the state is losing, and that's mostly rural counties. So we, we are having some issues with our population. And according to this graphic, and you know this was taken, I believe, in 2019, uh, 45 of our 67 counties have lost population in 2017 and 2018. However, when you're looking at it from a, a whole, you know, we're, we're actually staying pretty stagnant when it comes to population on the whole, if you're looking at the entirety of the state. And so we're looking at some of the, the areas that are growing. And, and there are a lot of ways that Alabama is doing very well on population and doing very well on economics. But unfortunately, for all the growth areas that we have, 
we have about as much leaving. And so th there's a number of issues with that. And, and probably the single biggest issue is not the amount of people leaving, but the kinds of people that are leaving. Because the type of person that is leaving tends to be younger. The kind of people that are staying tend to be older. And so there's a number of reasons why that might be the case. There's a number of reasons that we could point to. But the bottom line, and, and this is the thing that is concerning, is that the population is staying stagnant now. But what happens years down the road when all those young people that left are having kids and the people that we have continuing to stay in the state of Alabama are still kind of stagnant? That, that is a real issue. Now, that doesn't mean that we're having no growth in the younger demographic because especially with the Huntsville area, the reason you have a lot of people migrating there is because of tech jobs. In fact, I, I was reading something, this is a while ago, so I'm doing this from memory, so bear with me. I don't remember the population or the publication that actually wound up doing this, but there was one particular publication that ranked the top 10 nerd cities, and the, the, it was kind of done tongue-in-cheek, but it really was measuring population of different cities and why they were growing, and the main thing that it was looking at was the um, uh, amenities and, and the uh, things that are cropping up around STEM research kind of towns. So in other words, you've got a lot of younger people, people sort of in engineering careers that are primarily migrating, and Huntsville, I think, was seventh on the list. And so out of the whole country, Huntsville being a place where you have a lot of young professionals, and, and these are typically places with high-paying jobs, and so the average income in Huntsville is actually pretty good. And the reason for that is a lot of the people that are moving there, and this is going to be accelerated with the new space, uh, with the Space Force having their headquarters in Huntsville. And so there's a number of reasons why, why it's doing really well. Redstone Arsenal is a perfect example of that. And so because of that, we're having some younger families, especially ones with young kids moving in. So really that is what's doing very well for us. People in rural areas just tend to, to not retain as well, and the people that they do retain tend to be older. And that is a genuine concern. And, and how to fix that, I'm not really sure. But the point is, the areas that we have that are doing well are doing really well. And so I, I think it would be wise to sort of see that. One thing that, and, and this is just pure Caleb speculation, I don't have any data to back this up, this is just me throwing that out there, so take this with a grain of salt. But I think one thing that we're going to see, in the coming years especially, is that as some of those younger couples that moved into the city for convenience, as years go by, they start having more kids, they start having larger families, or even if they don't have kids, they just want a little bit more breathing room, you're going to see some of those people migrate out of the city into the suburbs once they develop a little bit more money and, and, and have a little, more, a little more financial stability. Now, is that person going to move an hour away into a rural podunk town in Alabama? Probably not. You probably will have some of that that don't mind the long commute, but that's going to be the minority. What you're actually going to be looking for, and this is the thing to keep your eyes on, is we're going to see the suburbs surrounding these areas sort of pop out. And, and by the way, we're already seeing this. If you're looking at what is tip, traditionally considered Birmingham proper or Huntsville proper, and then you expand that zone out into the surrounding communities, the surrounding communities are seeing tons of growth. The reason that you're seeing Madison, for example, being talked about almost like it's a major city in Alabama is because it's a suburb of Huntsville, 
and a lot of your wealthier people are driving into Huntsville from the Madison area or the areas surrounding it. My best friend, for example, lives in Trinity, Alabama and drives into the city. And so that's, that's a pretty rural community, but he actually works in the city. And you're seeing the same thing. I mean, people in Montgomery understand this. If you're watching this show and you happen to be in one of these other cities, you get it. But if, if you're in Montgomery, which is the bulk of my audience, you understand this phenomenon pretty well. Montgomery is probably the single best example of this out of all the major cities in Alabama, is that the city of Montgomery, its population is is fine and it's growing. Or no, I, I take that back. Actually, Montgomery is one of the cities that is decreasing. But if you're looking at the area surrounding it, Prattville, Wetumpka, those, city, those areas are becoming significantly more urbanized than they were. And whether you think that's good or a bad thing, that's up to you. But I'm just telling you, based on my own experience, I can remember when Cobbs Ford Road used to be mostly cotton fields. And you drive down Cobbs Ford Road, you can barely tell the difference in it in East, East Boulevard. I mean, you, it's, it's just hard to tell the difference. You've got shopping malls on each side. Uh, you've got plenty of restaurants. And, and frankly, it's a freaking traffic nightmare if you're going down Cobbs Ford any time during the rush hours of the day. And that's just like East Boulevard. I'm not saying that it's exactly the same or has exactly the same economic impact as East Boulevard, but I'm just saying it's very difficult to tell the difference at this point. You're seeing those things sort of mirrored in those outside communities. Just went to Wetumpka today. And Wetumpka, if you go in certain parts of the day to the downtown area, it's very difficult to find a parking spot. It's like driving in downtown Montgomery. And so we're seeing those things sort of mirrored in the outlying areas, and that is what's going to be happening population-wise with Huntsville, with Birmingham, with Mobile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're seeing um, your areas outside of, of Birmingham, like Fairhope, or Birmingham, outside of Mobile, like Fairhope, uh, Robertsdale, those areas are really growing right now. And so you're seeing a lot of population growth in those areas, and as long as we can keep that sort of maintained and make sure that those areas are growing specifically with younger families, we're probably going to be okay in the representation department, may even gain some seats if we can kick that up a notch. Uh, Bessemer, right outside of Birmingham, you're going to see a lot of growth there in the next few years because of that Amazon redistribution, or sorry, the, the Amazon distribution center that is going up there. We're going to see a lot of jobs come to that area as well. So we already know Alabama didn't lose any seats. We just stayed in the holding pattern. So now the question becomes, who did lose seats? Let's look at the census and the results of it. So this particular graph was put up by the uh, by National Public Radio, NPR. So, yay, your tax dollars going to a media company. That's, that's awesome. Anyway, so personal grudges aside, you can see the states there that lost a vote in the House. That's West Virginia, Michigan, New York, California, Illinois, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And the states that gained a vote, North Carolina, Florida, Oregon, Colorado, and Montana, and the state that gained two votes, the state of Texas. So these are the results of, and this is going to affect the House, this is going to affect the representation in the Electoral College. Texas is the big winner and on that with gaining two votes, and then the states that lost one vote, a big loser there. But let's go ahead and look at this, because I thought this was interesting. I, I wanted to figure out a way to try to explain this, and I'm not saying this is the only factor, but I think this is a significant factor. I did a little research on it, and you'll see there, these are the combined state and average local sales tax rate. So what this is, is it's a 
they added up what the state um, sales taxes and then combined that with the average sales tax when you're looking at local municipalities. So in, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, for example, they would have taken all of the areas and figured out what's the average sales tax in the state and then gone by that. And so you're looking at the sales tax burden in each of these states. So for West Virginia, 6.41, Michigan, 6%, so on and so forth. And you'll notice there's not a lot of distinction in these two graphs. Very little. It's slightly higher on the states that lost a vote, specifically if you're looking at California and Illinois and New York. Those are pretty high, but the thing is, Florida gained a seat. And it's at 7.05, and so that's not too far behind some of the states that lost seats, and it's actually higher than Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Michigan. So, And, and North Carolina is about on par with that. And Texas, which gained two seats, has higher sales tax combined than some of these areas. And so there might be a little bit of correlation, but there's not a lot of distinction. This data, of course, coming from the Tax Foundation. Now, I did a little bit more comparison, and I looked at state top income tax rate. So I just took the top income tax for the state and compared it. Now, here you start seeing some distinction. It's not super definitive. But you look at the states that lost one vote. California, the one that lost the most population, it has a 13.3% top tax rate. New York, a 10.9% top tax rate. That's significantly higher than anything on the states that gained a vote. Even a blue state like Oregon or Colorado has significantly lower income taxes than California and New York. But Illinois, which also lost one, it's got a 4.95, which is by no means outrageous. The big difference, though, and you will notice this, Florida and Texas, the state that gained the most with two on Texas, zero. No income tax whatsoever. So there's some distinction between these two lists. You will notice that there is a trend that the states that lost a vote, in other words, that lost population those states tended to have significantly higher income tax than the states that didn't. Now, there's some exceptions. For example, Oregon, which is a blue state, but did gain a vote because they did increase in population. It has a 9.9% income tax, where Pennsylvania, which actually lost a vote, has a tax that's only about a third of that, 3.07. So the best thing that I could come up with to try to illustrate a correlation between the two is I added the two charts that we just looked at. So what I did was I combined the tax burden of your average sales tax across the state and your top income tax. And now we start getting a real distinction. So you'll notice on this graph, California, which lost very high tax burden on them, 21.96%. And remember, all of this is completely separate and apart from the tax rate that you pay at the federal level. So this is all extra on top of the federal income tax you already pay, which is, of course, that's uniform across the board when it comes to states. New York with a 19.42, Illinois 14.3. And you don't see any of the states that gained in population have anything close to that. Oregon, which has no sales tax at all, it came up with a 9.9. So even uber-blue leftist Oregon has a little less than half the tax burden 
of California and New York. And they're the only major blue state. Colorado, it's kind of purplish, but it's been leaning blue recently. But it's got a similar tax burden. It's one of the ones that gained. But it's significantly lower than the average here. So let's look at the averages. The average state that lost a vote has an average tax burden of 14.27. The average state that gained a vote, 9.41. That's a significant difference. That's a difference of almost 5%, which would equate to about a third, you know, roughly 33% difference. That is not insignificant, gang. And that does illustrate kind of where we are right now. It shows that there is a desire to move to a place with a lower tax burden. That I'm not saying it's the only factor. Don't get me wrong. It's not the only factor. You've got businesses investing. You've got climate. There's a number of reasons why populations change. But I'm just saying it seems to me virtually impossible that this thing is just a coincidence that you've got states that lost having an average five percentage points higher, just about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's four and like, it's 4.8-ish, something around there. So it's, it's about 5%. You're seeing a 5% difference in the states that gained and the states that lost. That can't be a coincidence. Now, there may be side effects of that tax burden that is part of the reason as well. For example, the states that gained in, pop, in population have significantly better economies and, and have more businesses investing in those states, but that's because they have a lower tax burden, or at least that's one of the factors. So I'm not saying that this is a silver bullet. I'm not saying that this would solve all of the problems, but I'm saying we can't ignore a contrast that stark, that it seems to be abundantly clear that states that have lower taxes and lower government spending tend to gain in population. Now, what's really sad in all of this is the underlying message and, and the underlying reality, unfortunately, that what's probably going to happen is a lot of these people that are in blue states like California, like Illinois, which is hemorrhaging population right now, that those people are probably going to migrate to those red states like Florida, like Texas, which has zero income tax, and sadly wind up voting pretty much the same way that they did in the blue states, which will bring about policies and elected officials that bring them right back where they were in the blue states. And that's really sad, but that's the reality. The people in the blue states, Democrat-run states, are so awful at running their own states that they run people off, which then consequently ruin those states as well. It's a horrible thing that is a reality that sadly we just have to deal with. But, you know, I would encourage anybody that flees that tax burden or even flees the lack of jobs or anything else in those other states to sit down and think about why you moved in the first place. Do you really want there to become here when you left there so that you could come here? Do you really want to make the place that you fled to exactly like the place that you left? That doesn't make any sense. Because then you'll just have to wind up fleeing somewhere else. And so that is really seems to be the issue here. Is that and some people probably don't flee of their own free will. They don't sit down and think. Man, the tax burden is really, really bad in this state. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to a state with a lower income tax. It's probably not what happens. They probably get offered a job somewhere else where the economy is booming, and they don't really think about the tax burden and the, the lack of government, you know, less government in that state being the reason that that job is available in Texas and not in California. They don't think about it in those terms, and so they just move out to Texas because that's where their job demands they do. And when they get to Texas, they vote just like they did in California. And so it's not as though there is a disconnect there, don't get me wrong, but it's not as though the disconnect is as obvious as they think, man, this state is run so terribly, I'm going to move to this other better run state. And then they get there and they try to make the new state exactly like the old state. It's probably more that they move there because that's where the jobs are. They just never stop and think about, well, why are there more jobs available in this state and not in this state? That's probably what's going on, I would say, about at least 60-70% of the time. And that's the reason that they continue to vote for the terrible policies and elected officials in the new state as they did in the old state. But I wanted to bring your attention to one more thing on this because we see the averages there. You're seeing the states that lost votes versus the states that increased in population and actually gained votes and the, the stark contrast in the averages of their tax burden. Now let's compare that to the state of Alabama because I want to take this as a lesson and see what we can learn from that. So let's go ahead and look at our average combined sales tax, just like we did for them. It's 9.22, which is the fourth highest in the country. Let me repeat, highest, fourth highest in the country. Out of 50 states, there are only three that have a larger combined average sales tax rate than the state of Alabama. Now, I know that we often talk about Alabama as though it's this uber ruby red state. And to a great degree, it is. We have very conservative values. I mean, every freaking political ad that you're going to see from now until Election Day is going to be talking about how our elected officials teach Bible classes in their spare time. Yes, socially, we are incredibly conservative. But the truth is, economically, we're really kind of not. And I don't mean this to bash Alabama. I mean, we do have a lower tax burden in a lot of ways, and, and we do have more moderate government in a lot of ways than a lot of bluer states, but we're not an uber-conservative bastion when it comes to economic policy. The simple fact of the matter is our politicians really like to tax and really like to spend money. That's what they like to do. They can call themselves Republicans all they want, but we all know that especially in recent years, the state of Alabama was run by Democrats for 138 years, and only recently did we switch over to Republican and, and try to uh, get a hold on conservative economic principles. And because of that, there's a lot of stayover and a lot of Republicans serving right now that used to be Democrats. And so that's part of the issue right there is that they, they may have left the Democrat name behind and they may have even left the Democrat values behind when the Democrats started to change their stances on social issues. But they did not leave behind the economic policies and the way that they thought about policy from when they were Democrats. And so that's a real problem is that we have the fourth highest combined average sales tax rate in the nation out of the 50 states. Income tax, we're doing a lot better. We've got about 2% to 5%, which is a lot closer to average. We're, I think, below the middle of the pack, but not by a ton. But this gives us a combined average rate of 11.22 to 14.22. Now, if I could call your attention back just a second to the average that we saw there. Look at that, guys. 
we're a lot closer to the states that lost votes than we are to the states that won votes. Their average was 9.41 and our lowest possible, even if you're in the lowest possible tax income bracket. And remember, this is the highest possible income bracket because we took the top income sales to the, the top income tax from each state. Their highest averages at 9.41. Our lowest starts at 11 and ends almost exactly at the average of the states that lost votes. What does that tell you? That Alabama's tax burden is significantly too much. We're right there in the range. We're about on par with all of the states that lost votes. I don't think it's a coincidence that that took place, and we were also very concerned about losing a vote ourselves. Look, I'm a conservative, and I like Alabama because there are a lot of people here with conservative principles and, and conservative social values. But when it comes to economics, we're a lot closer to those, generally speaking, blue states the only exception that I can think of off the top of my head, the only red state I saw in that grouping was West Virginia. We're a lot closer to them economically than we are to Texas and Florida and some of the other states that have pretty low tax burdens, Montana, North Carolina, th those kinds of states. We're a lot closer to the, the states that had the really high tax burdens that lost votes than the other ones. And so if you want to increase the population of the state of Alabama, if you want to increase our potential for economic prosperity, I think the formula is pretty darn clear. Cut government spending, and for the love of all that is good and holy, cut the income tax to zero. Or, another thought, we could follow Oregon's model. I know it's weird to hear a conservative say that, but we could even follow Oregon's model. Do the opposite have just an income tax and no sales tax at all. Either one of those would be good. What we're doing now is we're taxing people at both ends. We're taxing you when you get paid, and then we tax you when, we sp when you spend the money that we already taxed you on. It's a double tax. And so what we need to do is we need to cut one or the other and keep the other at about the same rate that we have right now. And that would bring us pretty close to Texas and Florida. Remember, even if we just cut out the income tax altogether, we would still have a taxation rate higher than Florida and Texas, but at least it would be somewhere in the ballpark. We would be right around the average of the states that gained. You want to see an economic explosion. You want to see Alabama be an economic powerhouse in this country. That's what you need to do to do it. Part of the problem and part of the reason that the South, as a general rule, is not... I mean, just exploding with economics even more than they already are, the reason that their economies are not doing as well as they could is because Democrats ran their states for over 100 years too, and they have a lot of those old economic policies in place that the Democrats did, which is largely, not entirely, but largely redistribution of wealth. And because of that, what we're going to see here if we don't do something to... If we don't do something here to bring us closer to where Florida and Texas are, we're going to be left in the dust. I mean, that's all there is to it. If we want to have that economic prosperity, we have got to switch over to the, the Texas and Florida. Think about this. We have basically all of the resources available to us that Texas and Florida do. We're a significantly smaller state. We, we, you know, we're not as populated as they are. But think about it. 
we have really good water resources. We have oil resources, not as many as Texas and Florida, but still pretty good oil resources with the Gulf. We have cheap energy. We have abundant resources as far as land goes. We have good cropland. We're basically self-sufficient. We, we could, um, there were only, uh, in a study I saw a few years ago, there are only five or six states in the entire country that but somehow every other state just vanished off the face of the earth that could continue to sustain themselves with the natural resources we have, and Alabama is one of them. And the only difference in us and the economic prosperity that, that we seem to be lacking in a lot of ways versus states surrounding us that seem to be booming like Texas and Florida is that we have an income tax and they don't. I mean, all the resources are there. We're very comparable to them in culture and everything else. The only thing that we seem to be lacking is that we've got an income tax, which has become a millstone around our neck, and they don't. We're double taxing people, and it's not right, and it's causing us to not live up to our full potential. Uh, we need to eliminate one of those taxes, and I would suggest eliminating the, I would suggest eliminating the income tax, and then keeping the sales tax about where it is, maybe cutting it a little bit, but. But keeping it right in that nine percentile area, that would put us pretty much on par. Still a little bit more, a little bit higher tax burden than Texas or Florida, but that's something very easy that we could do that would put us at least in the same uh, sphere, the same ballpark when it comes to tax burden as them. And, and so I say to you know my friends in the legislature, people like Mike Holmes or Will Dismukes, you know people that that have been on this program before and I've talked to. That needs to be priority one. That will significantly help the state if you can pull that off. Now, there are a lot of things that happened over the past week, but, you know, with Thursday, what was going on over here at Faulkner, I just, it was move outs and I just did not have time to get to it. That's actually why I'm doing the Monday edition of the show as opposed to it being the Thursday edition, which is what I normally do. So instead of doing a Thursday show, I decided to do a, a Monday show and just hold off on it. And because of that, I hate that I didn't get to this, but we're going to go ahead and go over some of the, the, the most obvious parts of it now. The non-state of the union that was issued by President Joseph Robinette Biden. And yes, that is his middle name. It's a family name that comes back from when his family were slaveholders. True story. Look it up. But anyway, the context of this, I think, is important to set the stage because we are now completed, even though when the, the speech took place, it was right before his 100-day mark. We are in the first 100 days, and I mean, this is, this is how he looks right out of the gate. Just watching the speech as a whole, Biden starts fading hard in the second half. I mean, he starts out okay. He really does. Like, early on in that speech, I wouldn't say that he looks as lucid or as energetic as presidents of the past, for sure. But he looks like a president normally, something similar to what you would normally expect from a normal pre normal president. But man, he hits that 30-minute mark, and he starts fading hard. Like, it, it is time for his pudding break at that 30-minute mark. He just, he can't keep it together. And he starts slurring his words really badly, and he starts losing where he is. He'll, he'll trail off in sentences or trail off in thoughts. Now, he didn't do that as much in this speech because he does have a, a prompter right there and he's already written the speech and so it's, it's all reading. But even with reading, you could tell that there's times where he looks really confused. And I, I'm just saying, the president cannot have a 30-minute a time limit. Like, he, 
he needs to be able to go for a little while, especially in meetings and, and meeting with dignitaries and that kind of thing. And it is genuinely concerning to me that Joe Biden is, he just doesn't have it anymore. I'm sorry. I've seen video footage of the guy in the 80s. And I didn't agree with a lot of what he was saying, but he was on top of it. He knew what he was saying. He was able to spit it out very quickly. And even if I thought his arguments were bad, they were coherent. That's not the Joe Biden we have anymore, guys. And it's really unfortunate. And I, I'm just sitting there thinking, what must America's enemies be thinking watching this thing? Because it does not reflect well on the American people that this is the guy that we chose. This is the one that we think ought to be leading us. I, I just... It made us look really weak. And another thing that I noticed about the speech as a whole is it was mostly sort of indicative of the entire Biden administration, which is it's radicalism wrapped in the language of moderatism. So, I mean, it's, it's extremely far left stuff, but he's trying to say it in a way that it sounds reasonable and sounds moderate. Now, granted, Joe is not nearly as good at this as his former boss, Barack Obama. I mean, I didn't like Obama, obviously, but the, the greatest talent that Barack Obama had was taking something extremely radical and left-wing and making it sound like just a common-sense thing that everybody agrees on. Joe's not nearly as good at it as he was, but you can tell that's what he's trying to do. And part of the way that you can say this is, and it's funny, Trump kind of does this to a degree, too, but Joe's just not naturally as good at it. And so what Joe Biden will say is he'll spit out a radical policy and say, this is what Americans want. This is what Americans want. Everyone agrees with it. Now, Trump would be like, everyone's talking about it. Everyone agrees. This is what we need to do. Now, they're both exaggerations in, in large part. Um, and, and usually it is a call to some kind of anecdotal evidence when they say that. But the difference is, with Biden, the thing that he was trying to push for is significantly more radical and outside of the mainstream as what Trump was doing. Normally when Trump said it, even if it was something that was a little bit more of a fringe belief, it was still something that was kind of observed by and, and approved by a large swath of Americans. I mean, Biden just goes out there and says something that I don't know anybody that holds that opinion. And, and I don't know of this being a, a large, you know, consensus amongst the American people. And I, I pay pretty close attention to public opinion polls and that kind of thing. And Joe just says, everyone agrees. And I'm like, mm, no, they don't. In fact, there's data that suggests the exact opposite. But um, I can't count the number of times he said the American people agree or something akin to that. But here's the reason that they're doing all that. The left is in a rush. And if I were a leftist, that would make sense to me. I would be in a rush too. And the reason that they are is because they kind of feel like they squandered their time. They, they wasted their ability to get some things through with Barack Obama. And, and to some degree they did. I don't think that's an incorrect read by them. But when Barack Obama started his tenure as our president, he had the House, and not only did he have the Senate, he had a, a filibuster-proof Senate. So in other words, he had enough senators to where they couldn't even filibuster him. And don't get me wrong, they still passed a lot of radical things, including the 
Affordable Care Act, which raised the average insurance price of the American family by about 200 to 200, or sorry, um, 2,000 to 2,500. Uh, 2, wow, I'm getting a little Joe Biden here. Uh, it raised the average price of insurance for a year anywhere from 2000 to $2,500 per family of four. And so anything but affordable. But the point is they were able to get it through, and that was something that they openly said was a gateway to single-payer health care. That is not an insignificant thing, but they kind of feel like that's really all they were able to get. They weren't able to get through a lot of the gun policies that they wanted. They weren't able to get amnesty, that kind of thing. And so they feel like they kind of trying to play the middle and pretend like they were moderates. They did that a little too much. And so now they're kind of overcorrecting in the other direction. They're still playing the game of trying to sound like moderates, but they're passing through as much radical agenda as they possibly can. They're, they're not doing a whole lot in action to hide it. But here's the thing. Obama's a Marxist. He really, he's a true believer in socialism. And so are people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. But Joe Biden isn't. I really think that Joe Biden doesn't believe in a lot of that. He's just going along with it because that's what his base wants. He's doing kind of the populist thing right now. And I also think because of his age and because he's not really with us, that a lot of those decisions are being made without his consent or without him even looking at it. He's just kind of trusting his advisors, which at his age, you know, you can kind of understand. And so what's going on here is that what you are seeing is exactly the same thing that happened under Barack Obama, but the American people are lulled to sleep literally by Joe Biden because he's boring, because he's not in the news an awful lot, because the guy's basically a walking corpse. He's able to get a lot of these radical policies through because people don't believe that his policies are radical because they don't believe that he himself is radical. Even people that kind of liked Obama would still admit that he's pretty darn far left. But even though Joe Biden is passing policies similar to or even further left than Barack Obama's time in office, they don't see it that way in large part because they see Joe Biden as a moderate. I mean, a great proof of this is this actually happened later in the week. But you have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the honorable AOC, possibly the dumbest person in Congress, but you know, I, I'm thinking top five. My, maybe not necessarily. You've still got Maxine Waters and other people in there. But anyway, so AOC saying that she actually has been surprisingly impressed with the Joe Biden administration and the progressive policies that got through, and, and that's a correct read by her. Um, I mean, I don't like AOC, and I still think she's dumb as a sack of hammers, but her observation is correct. Joe Biden gets the AOC stamp of approval. And remember, this is the person that proposed spending $50 trillion on a Green New Deal. To put that into context, the amount of money on the planet, all currency combined, is somewhere between 70 and 90 trillion. And she wanted to spend roughly a little over half that on one country's climate policy. That's how radical she is. And she says, yep, Joe Biden gets my stamp of approval on this. She was one that was very skeptical of the Biden administration at the start and did not want him to be the nominee from the Democrat Party. And she's saying, you know what, I've been pleasantly surprised. He's basically been pushing all the crazy leftist radical stuff that we've been 
asking for for a long time. And so that's been the hallmark of the Biden administration thus far. And so that's why leftists are in a rush is because they know Biden. First of all, they know Biden can't last much longer. I mean, they can see him just like we can see him. They can see that the guy is fading. They can see that this is not going to last longer. And if Kamala Harris does take over, the American people are going to be far more skittish and far more skeptical of Kamala Harris because she does talk like a radical. And she doesn't just fade into the background like, you know, the color of your living room. I mean, that, that's who Joe Biden is. He fades into the background. Kamala doesn't do that. She's loud. She cackles like the Joker. I mean, the cameras just zoom in on her. Joe Biden can get a lot of this through because of that, and they know that once Joe Biden is gone, they won't be able to do this as easily. And I think part of the reason they're in a rush, too, which makes sense, is I think that they sense that they're living on borrowed time. The past couple of times that a new president has come into office, especially when he has the House of Representatives, that very next election cycle, that party loses the House of Representatives. And that's even more true now. Because remember that when Barack Obama took office, there was an overwhelming majority of Democrats in the House. When Donald Trump took office, it wasn't quite as big a margin, but he still had a significant lead with representatives in the House for the Republicans. Joe Biden has the narrowest majority in the House in a hundred years. This is an incredibly tiny margin between the Republicans and the Democrats. It would be very easy for the Republicans to take the House. I would be personally shocked if they do not take the House in 2022. And they're tied up in the Senate. The only reason that they're able to get things through in the Senate is because of the tie-breaking vote of Kamala Harris. And so because of that, the Democrats understand that they are on borrowed time. Now, looking at the lineup, looking at how the, the election shakes out, it's not super favorable for the Republicans when it comes to the Senate, but it would be very difficult to believe that the Republicans do not take the Senate, even if it's just by a vote or two. There's a couple of very vulnerable Democrat seats that I really couldn't see going red in this next election cycle. Possible, but unlikely that they're able to keep the 50-50 tie in between the, the Senate. And so the Democrats understand that they are living on borrowed time, and that's the reason they're trying to pass all of this as quickly as humanly possible. And so you're looking at, for example, there are 14 blue seats up for grabs in the 2020, and one of them is Warnock, which traditionally Georgia has been a red state for a, a while now. It just now went to where they, they had two Democrat senators, and there was one that both had to go to a runoff. That's how tight the races were. And one of the runoffs was flipped. It was originally won by a Republican and then got won by a Democrat. And this is not going to be a special election. This is going to be a midterm election, which doesn't have quite as high turnout as a presidential election, but still a significant turnout. And so what you're probably going to see is it's, there's a very, very good chance that Warnock loses his seat. There's also a decent chance that uh, Maggie Hansen of New Hampshire loses her seat. I would say that's less vulnerable than Warnock's seat, but it's still up for grabs. And so... I'm really predicting that the Republicans take the House and the Senate in the midterm election. I would be surprised if they don't, especially with the things that Biden is doing. It, frankly, if the Republicans cannot win the House and the Senate, if they cannot take over Congress as a whole, 
they should be fired. They should all lose their jobs. Frankly, I think they should lose their jobs anyway. But my point is, they should, it would it would be a travesty. I mean, it would be a indicative of just sheer laziness on their part if they are not able to take both of these houses. So what I want to do is I want to take a quick gander at some of the worst clips of the night because I, I thought really where Joe Biden did his worst because I figured I'd pick one subject and stick with that instead of doing a whole speech analysis. Um, the parts where Joe Biden does the worst, I think, are when he talks about economics because it affects everything else. And so we'll go ahead and watch a couple clips from that. How do we pay for my jobs and family plan? I made it clear we can do it without increasing the deficit. Let's really with what I will not do. I will not impose any tax increase on people making less than four hundred thousand dollars. It's, but it's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. Now, this is absurdly stupid on a number of, of levels. Now, by the way, to be fair, I say exactly the same thing when Republicans say we're not going to increase the deficit. We're going to cut spending, but we're not going to cut taxes. No, can't do it that way. That's not how math works. And sometimes they'll say the opposite. We're going to cut taxes. We're not going to cut any government spending. And this is actually the, the way that it more than often happens. We're going to cut taxes, going to leave spending alone, but we're not going to increase the deficit. Now, to be fair, that one is slightly more realistic because there have been times, and in fact, the, the most recent time where we cut taxes in the Trump era, our revenues went up because there were more people working. The economy was better. We had uh, a reduction in the amount of taxes each person was paying but there were more total taxpayers and the people that were paying taxes were making more money. And so their percentage remained lower, but the raw dollar amount they were paying went up because they were getting raises, they were getting better jobs, so on and so forth. And so it is possible to not increase the deficit, reducing taxes, but keeping the level of spending the same. It, 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 is, impo it is possible. It's not impossible. What Joe Biden is talking about is completely impossible. You cannot spend at the level you're talking about and increase taxes and it be deficit neutral. It just can't be done. The math doesn't work. He's proposing trillions and trillions in new spending. Uh, if you add it all up, I, I believe the total that I saw was anywhere between 8 and 10 trillion over the next 15 years. But the tax increases that he's expecting, those are not going to come anywhere near the numbers that he needs to get to that point, he cannot possibly add that level of spending without increasing the deficit. He's lying to you, to your face. And more importantly, when he says, look, they just have to pay their fair share. They got to pay their fair share. What's their fair share? Can someone please explain this to me? What is the fair share? Give me a dollar amount. Give me a percentage amount. Give me something, something tangible that I can know what their fair share is so I can know when we've met it. This is something that Democrats do not like to do. They don't want to give you a dollar amount. If you've ever heard the song by um, CCR that, you know, Fortunate Son, they say when you ask how much should we give, the answer is more, 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 more. That's the only answer that they know, gang. That's why they never give you a tangible goal, because then you could say, oh, we met the goal. They're paying their fair share now. And then they want then they'd have to say, well, really, their fair share is more than that. They'll never give you an actual dollar amount because they don't want to be held to that standard.
They don't want to be tied down and say, well, we, I know we said we were going to tax them at 90%, but we really, really need 95%. We feel that that's fair. And the other reason that they won't say it is because they know how ridiculous they would sound if they did give a percentage to the average voter. Because the average voter, and there have been polls done on this, they feel that the rich are not paying their fair share. But then when you say, but they're paying about, depending on what state they're living in, about 60-ish percent of their income goes to taxes, they're like, oh, that seems a little high. See, even uber-rich people, even millionaires and billionaires, when you tell the average person how much money in taxes they actually have taken away from them, then they're like, yeah, that does seem kind of, uh, kind of high. It goes back to a mentality they don't want to give you the percentage because they know that once they hear it, it sounds unreasonable. It's much easier to just say, well, they should pay their fair share. And sort of to illustrate this, look at this, um, which comes from the Heritage Foundation. You can see here, this is the percentage of all income earned. So this is a, a percentage of the GDP versus the share of income taxes that are paid. So the bottom 50% of Americans make roughly 12% of all the money. 12% of all the GDP, all the production in America is brought home by the bottom 50% of Americans. And yet they're only contributing to 3% of the overall tax burden. And you'll see there that as you go along, the richer you are, the larger portion of the tax burden you actually bear. The only exception is the top 5%, which, um, you know, sorry, 5 to 10%, which earns about 11% of America's income earned and then pays about 11%. So theirs is dead even. But everybody else, if you're poorer, you're already putting way less into the system than you earn. And if you're richer and it says the top 1%, you're earning about 21% of all of the income in America, yet you're paying 40% of the tax burden. And what this illustrates is that rich people are absolutely paying their fair share. The top 5% to the top 1% are paying for way more of the total tax burden than the amount of income they actually take in. And so, how is that not paying their fair share? How is it that you're earning 20% of the wealth, paying for 40%, of the tax burden and they're not paying enough. I read a really brilliant analogy by an economist and he said, if we paid for a dinner, like let's say that there were a hundred people in the room and we paid for dinner like we paid the taxes and each plate was $50 a head. Well, that would mean, and according to this graphic that we looked, the, the bottom um, 50% would be paying $3 a head. And the richest person in the room would be paying about $1,700. And all the Democrats would be complaining that that one rich guy that paid $1,700 for dinner, when you had people at the bottom, half of the people in the room, paying only $3 for a $50 meal, saying that the rich guy didn't pay his fair share. $1,700 a plate. That's the mathematical equivalent to how much rich people are paying. And by the way, I have said this for a long time. I'm in favor of a flat tax. If you're making a million dollars a year, you ought to be paying 10% of that million. And that 10% of that million is still way more than the guy making 30000 a year. I mean, that guy's only paying $3,000 in taxes. It's still a progressive tax. 
but it would be significantly more fair than what we've got going on right now, where we're taxing the mess out of everybody that is doing well. And what actually winds up happening in this is the real amount in, in tax, and by the way, that's after tax deductions and everything else. What's actually going on here is that we are already living under a progressive tax system. It's already incredibly redistributive, and the Democrats want it to be more so. Now, here's another one that kind of illustrates this point. You can see here, and this comes from the Tax Foundation, this is the amount of income that you take in and how much you paid in taxes and how much benefit you see from that. So you'll see the uh, middle quintile is where this flips. And, and by the way, that just means like the if you were to divide Americans into uh, the bottom 20%, the next 20%, the middle 20 the uh, middle upper 20 and then the top 20 income earners. This is the amount they pay in taxes versus the benefit that they get back. And so you'll see there, if you're in the first three quintiles, in other words, 60% of the American people are seeing significantly more benefit, they're getting more value for their dollar that they send into the Fed than they pay into it. And so they're actually a drain on the tax system. And then the top 40%, they're paying way more than they're getting out of it. And so our tax system as it exists right now before Joe Biden and what he's trying to implement is already a radically progressive Marxist system. We're already having redistribution of wealth on a massive scale. It's just because we have some of those free market capitalist ideas still in place, they're still able to make enough money that it somewhat offsets it, but they're still seeing way less value for it and, and getting way less back than they're putting in. The rich people are already paying their fair share. I'm sorry, but if you don't believe this, you're a stupid person. The data is there. It's incredibly obvious. The numbers are nowhere close to making that case. And Joe Biden continues to do this because the goal is to try to divide people. The goal is to try to set up this classist system to where we're trying to divide people along those lines. And he doesn't stop there. This is another part of the speech by Joe Biden. Recent study shows that 55 of the nation's biggest corporations paid zero federal tax last year. Those 55 corporations made in excess of $40 billion in profit. A lot of companies also evade taxes through tax havens in Switzerland and Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. And they benefit from tax loopholes and deductions for offshoring jobs and shifting profits overseas. It's not right. We're going to reform corporate taxes so they pay their fair share and help pay for the public investments their businesses will benefit from as well. Okay, this is an absurdly stupid point for a couple of reasons. Primarily, back when the corporate tax rate was at the rate which Joe Biden is proposing, the rate that it was under Barack Obama, we had by far the highest corporate tax rate on planet Earth. It wasn't even close. We're taxing close to 40% for corporations. And there is no country, not the Netherlands, not Denmark, not the UK, not any of our European counterparts that leftists love to point to and say we should follow their economic model, their corporate taxes were nowhere near where our rate was. When we brought it back to 21%, we were about middle of the pack. 
we were about on average with other countries around us. Trump didn't even bring it back to where conservatives would want it to be. He brought it back to eh, somewhere where we're about the middle of the packet and we're about on par with the countries that already have soft core socialism over in Europe. That we're about on, on the same level as them as opposed to being way out in front as by far the highest corporate tax rate on planet Earth. The second part of that is it's a complete lie. These large corporations that didn't pay anything in taxes, uh, yeah, they did. They may not have paid in corporate tax because they, they had a net loss or for some other reason they, they reinvested it in R&D and because of that got tax credits back. So they may not have paid anything in corporate taxes, but they paid payroll taxes. They paid sales taxes on any items they bought. If they bought anything or had any parts brought in overseas, they paid uh, tariffs. Uh, they, they, they paid lots of money, billions of dollars in taxes. They just didn't pay any in their corporate tax rate. And the second part of that is, and I find this really hilarious, this was going on before the Trump tax cuts. See, the liberals love to push this narrative. Like, all these corporations were, were really having it stuck to them back in the Obama administration, but once you know, the evil Trump administration came in and destroyed our country. What they did is they created all these tax shelters and loopholes. No, those pre-existed. Those were way before Donald Trump. In fact, GE, which was a close political ally of the Obama administration, paid zero during the Obama administration in corporate taxes. Now, again, just like I said for Amazon and other big corporations, they did pay things in like payroll taxes and... Um, you know, if they bought any land, they paid taxes on, on property, they paid taxes on their assets, they paid taxes on imports, that kind of thing. They did all of that. But they didn't pay anything, GE did, didn't pay anything in corporate taxes. And nobody on the left that I can remember had a problem with that. And who was, remind me, in office then? Oh yeah, Vice President Joe Biden, and before that had been a senator for like a thousand years. And so, he acts as though he's this weird, innocent bystander that had nothing to do with the process that we have today, and, and had nothing to do with the way that taxes are run, and yet he's the one complaining about how those policies that he helped implement, or that, that he helped pass, are now implemented. Well, if you had a problem with it, Joe, what have you been doing for the past 40 years? Sitting on your hands? It is absolutely incredible. But one other thing that I want to speak to that he, he made mention of, he talked about, you know, offshore tax shelters and loopholes. Again, what is that the result of? Tax bills that Joe Biden helped pass. It's amazing to me how often Joe Biden complains about things that he had a hand in passing. For example, he's been talking about racism and prison reform and all that stuff, yet he's the one that was the primary cheerleader of the 1994 crime bill, which, by the way, was a pretty good bill. But now he's running away from it, even though he was the guy that helped bring it to fruition back then. This is the thing that's so amazing to me, is that he is constantly doing this dance where he is criticizing the very policies that he advocated for. When he talks about healthcare, for example, we're currently living under Obamacare 
which he helped pass. He was the one going out there and advocating for it under his boss, Barack Obama, who the bill was named after. And yet this is where we are. But the average voter, I guess, just doesn't know that or doesn't care. And another thing, when he talks about tax shelters and, and tax loopholes, what do you think increasing corporate taxes are going to do? Is that going to result in more people avoiding those taxes? Like, let's say if it were a tax that were, I don't know, 20% on ice cream. What would increasing that tax to 40% do? You'd have people buying less ice cream. You'd have people avoiding that tax. You'd have more people buying yogurt. You'd have more people uh, going somewhere else to get their dessert. You'd have people choosing other desserts you're going to have the same thing with this corporate tax increase. All that's going to do is increase the amount of people because they, they have a greater financial incentive to find those loopholes and to find those tax shelters. Back in the Obama administration, one of the most American companies that there is, Burger King, moved to Canada because the tax burden was too high. And remember, they're uber-left and uber-woke. And because of the insane corporate tax burden that they had, they're like, we're getting the heck out of here. We're moving to Canada. And other corporations that had other infrastructure in other nations did exactly the same thing. Doesn't matter how left you are. Doesn't matter how woke you are. At the end of the day, you still got to look after your bottom line if you're running a business. And that's exactly what they did. All of what President Biden is proposing here is going to lead to more of the very thing he's criticizing companies for, not less. All that's going to do is have more outsourcing, not less. And that's the thing that he does not seem to understand. Those policies have a ripple effect on the economy. But he didn't stop there. We take the top tax bracket for the wealthiest 1% of Americans, those making over $400,000 or more, back up to where it was when George W. Bush was president, when he started, 39.6%. That's where it was when George W. was president. We're going to get rid of the loopholes, allow Americans to make more than a million dollars a year and pay a lower tax rate on their capital gains than Americans who receive a paycheck. We're only going to affect three-tenths of 1% of all Americans by that action. Three-tenths of 1%. And the IRS is going to crack down on millionaires and billionaires who cheat on their taxes. It's estimated to be billions of dollars by think tanks are left, right, and center. I'm not looking to punish anybody. But I will not add a tax burden, additional tax burden, to the middle class in this country. They're already paying enough. The only thing that Joe Biden said in that that made any sense at all is that the middle class is already paying enough. I agree. And so is everyone else, including the rich and including the poor. They're already paying enough. In fact, everybody's tax burden should be brought down. That's the option that he seems to be missing. I agree with Joe Biden that they're paying enough. But so are the rich. We need to bring that tax burden down. This is the funny thing that Really, that was a, a perfect little microcosm of the problem with leftist thinking when it comes to economics. 
the economy is an ecosystem. You cannot introduce something new to the ecosystem that doesn't affect the whole. Now, the effect further down the line might be less of an effect than on the thing that you're directly affecting, but the effect is felt either way. If you take out, for example, an apex predator from an ecosystem, that causes populations of the things that the apex predator was feeding off of to escalate, or it causes another apex predator to appear. There's a number of different effects that can be the result of you removing that factor, but the point is, in an ecosystem, everything affects everything. And the economy is exactly the same way. It's like a pond. You can't throw a rock into a pond and it not affect the entire pond. Now, of course, the biggest effect is going to be wherever that rock lands. But all of the water is going to move, even if it's very little, by the time that the ripples get really wide out. And the bigger rock you throw, the bigger the effect is going to be on the whole. You can't only affect one part of the ecosystem. It affects everything. And so when people increase your capital gains tax from... You know, it depends on, on how much you get, but I believe it's like somewhere in the 7 or 8 percentile now. When you increase that to 30 or 40, when it, it's somewhere near the corporate tax rate, that is going to have a ridiculous level of effect on the economy as a whole. Because anytime you tax something, and I, I never understood why people can understand this with cigarettes and beer, but they can't understand this with uh, economies as a whole. Whenever you tax anything, you disincentivize its purchase. When you tax gasoline, people don't buy as much gasoline. They tend to be more cautious with their purchase. They tend to not drive as much. They may just make decisions based on not going somewhere because it's too expensive to pay the gas tax. If you increase the taxes on cigarettes, people are going to buy less cigarettes just because it's more price restrictive. Everybody understands this, but all of a sudden when it comes to the stock market, people can't understand it for some reason. If you increase the capital gains tax, which is a tax on investing in things, people are going to invest less. And when that happens, it's harder for businesses to actually get investors to start competing with larger businesses. That's why corporations love a capital gains tax. Because if you're Amazon, your worst nightmare is that all of a sudden another company starts rivaling you when it comes to online sales. That's the worst case scenario. But if there's a capital gains tax, it's really kind of difficult for anybody to be able to get the investments to start that business up. Because there's less incentive, they're going to make less money off of their investment. And so really only the people that have pretty good financial backing in the beginning, that already are basically already ahead, they're already got a lead and a leg up on everybody else, are going to be the ones that can actually get investors because people are more cautious and they more want to invest their money in something that they feel like is more of a sure thing. And because those profits are going to be reduced, they have less money to turn that back over and make more investments in the future. And so it's a vicious cycle. It is impossible to just tax the rich. When you tax the rich, that also has that ripple effect on the economy as a whole. People are less willing to invest. They're less willing to buy more resources, in other words, buy that new warehouse that they were looking at or expanding their business or increasing their client base. They're less likely to hire new people because they're worried about new regulations that could come about or they don't have as much liquid income. They don't have as much liquid revenue and, and they can, can't can really reinvest it as much as they used to. 
you cannot do something to just this one particular segment of the economy. It affects the whole. And when you say we're just going to tax the rich, but we're not going to affect the middle class, what do you think the rich people are going to do? They're going to look for tax shelters. They're going to look for loopholes. They're going to relocate their business somewhere else. And they're going to pass that cost along to the middle class people that are buying their stuff. That's the way that this works. And it just amazes me that people on the left do not understand this concept. It's incredibly simple. It's one of the most basic rules of economics, and yet they completely ignore it. They act as though they can tax just this portion of the population, and it will have no effect on anybody else. That's not the way the world works. You know, when you affect one part of it, you affect the whole. And what's really crappy about this whole thing is, you remember how we were talking about how a sales, having a sales tax and an income tax is really bad for the economy because you're taxing the same income twice? You're taxing when you get paid and then you're taxed again when you spend it on anything? This is the same thing. Because a capital gains tax is somebody that made money and then is taking that money and investing it in something else. And so when they take that money and invest it in something else, well, then it's a second bite of the apple. This is money that they've already been taxed on once when they made the money, and then the government is taking a secondary bite at that apple. And so what happens if you've already been taxed at like 30 or 40% because you're, you know, doing okay. Let's say you are making over 400,000 a year or 200,000 a year or whatever. Okay. You're doing a little bit more. You're doing a little bit better. And now you're going to get another 40% tax on the money that was already taxed at 40%. You know, that means if, if you take it by half, let's say it's 40 and 40, that means that roughly 60% of your money has been taken at that point. It's not a trick. It's not a loophole. It's not something that somebody forgot about. Capital gains tax is low because it's trying to incentivize people to invest. And more importantly, they understand that this is already taxing income that has already been taxed once. And so it's not as though it's a loophole or money that they missed. It's an additional tax on top of money that already got taxed. The lies that they tell the American people to try to get their desired policies through are absolutely horrible. And in this case, 32% of all Americans have a 401k. And this is going to affect all of them. They're like, we're not going to raise taxes on the middle class. Um, well, if it's 32% of the population, I'm pretty sure that includes some middle class people. They're investors too. They are investing in their future just like the rich people at the top that are making millions of dollars off of the stock market. Sure, their returns are going to be less significant and the difference isn't going to be felt as much by them, but just like my pond analogy, it's still going to be felt. They're still going to see less money coming into their retirement plan. And that's a third of the population, y'all. This is not something that you can just affect this one particular segment of the population and leave everybody else alone. It's an ecosystem. It doesn't work that way. And then finally, Joe Biden kind of closed out his comments on taxes and spending and with this. I believe what I propose is fair, fiscally responsible, and it raises revenue to pay for the plans I propose and will create millions of jobs that will grow the economy and enhance our financial standing in the country. When you hear someone say, 
They don't want to raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% or corporate America. Ask them whose taxes you want to raise. Instead, who's they going to cut? So there's a couple of reasons that that's, this one in particular is really dumb. First of all, it assumes that government is just more efficient than private business. Because you heard what he said there, he's like, I believe what I'm proposing is fair, and it's fiscally responsible, and here's why. Yes, we're going to be taking billions of dollars out of the economy, but it's going to create jobs. Yeah, what do you think is more likely to create jobs? Letting people keep their own money, and letting people actually invest in things, or the government taking that money from people and creating jobs out of whole cloth? We've seen the results of this play out in the past. Private industry does a much better job of creating long-lasting jobs than government does. It just does. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we have tried this before, right? We spent about $2 trillion, not quite $2 trillion, but close to it, in two stimulus packages. I don't know. There was some guy that was a vice president at that point when those stimulus packages went through. Oh, right, it was Joe Biden. And those stimulus packages were such an abysmal failure, the architect of them, Barack Obama, came back and said, yeah, shovel-ready jobs didn't, they weren't quite as shovel-ready as we thought they were. Even Barack Obama had to admit that the stimulus did not create good jobs that paid in the long term. These were temporary things. They weren't as instantaneous as he believed that they were going to be. And the whole thing was an abysmal failure. I mean, even Barack Obama understood this and admitted to it. And Joe Biden's like, yeah, we need to try that again. You know what the definition of insanity is? It's trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. If he couldn't make it work under Barack Obama, why would we think Joe Biden could do the same thing and it will work? It'll just work this time. I don't. This is going to be an obscure reference, but have you ever seen Bee Movie? The movie with Jerry Seinfeld is a little cartoon bee. There's a really great scene in there where he sees a window and he runs right into it and it, it, he smacks his head against the glass and he's like, ah, that was weird. Maybe it'll work this time. And then he does it again and does it again. No, this time. No, this time. That's how Democrats are with taxation and spending. They really believe that no matter how many times they fail, no matter how many times their policies show to be abysmal failures, they're like, but maybe it'll just work this one time. Maybe we can. We, we just need to get all the pieces in place the right way, and, and it'll just stimulate the economy this time. And it never works. Remember that the stimulus was done, the original one was done, I believe, in 2009, and then we had another one in 2011. The recession didn't end or didn't even really start to recover until the final year of Obama's presidency. It had no effect on the economy. It was mostly a bunch of political paybacks for his buddies that helped him get elected. But the fact that Joe Biden used the word fiscally responsible in that when he is proposing roughly $10 trillion in new spending is just laughable. I mean, our government spending right now is eclipsing, we're coming close to 75% of GDP. So if you take every cent that America produces in an entire year with the proposals that he has put forward, we would be spending about 75% of that through government spending. And yet somehow, 
He says that just increasing taxes on the people that are already paying 40% of the tax burden in America right now, somehow that's going to make it to where we can pay for a $10 trillion plan. All right, now let's do some quick math here, boys and girls. The revenue that he's expecting to gain would have to be put in place and implemented, and this is according to his own people, over the span of 15 years. But the programs he's proposing would only last for eight. So I want you to think about this. Would you purchase a car? You would have to pay for for 15 years, knowing that it would break down after eight. Let's say they, they guaranteed after eight years, no matter what you do, no matter how well you maintain it, the car is going to be unworkable in eight years. But we're going to have to take every single dime that you make for the next 15 years in order to pay for it. No sane person would take that deal. Because what are you going to do for the seven years after the car breaks down? And that's exactly the problem with what he's proposing here. Are we just going to not have government for those years? Do you think that these programs are going away? Nothing is more permanent than a temporary government program. I believe that was Ronald Reagan that said that, and he was right. Most of these programs are here to stay. We might get rid of a few of them here and there. Maybe the Supreme Court will rule a few of them unconstitutional. But the point is, he's budgeting 15 years' worth of taxation as a way to pay for eight years' worth of spending. That's completely unsustainable. And even if everything happened there, that's still assuming that nobody would change their behavior. That the economy would still be running at the rate that it is, which we're technically in, a, in an economic recovery now, so that's overestimating by a good bit. And that's also assuming that not a single person would look at the new increased tax burden and go, hmm, maybe I should figure out a way to avoid that. Maybe I should move out of the way of the speeding train coming my way. He's saying that nobody would change their behavior in any way and the economy would stay stagnant. The, the, the economy would stay exactly the way it is right now for all of those 15 years. That wouldn't be realistic even if you weren't increasing taxes. And so none of this makes any sense. But I think the bigger issue, and, and this goes with everything that he said here, it is about dividing us along racial and class lines. Now the racial part he gets to in a, a little bit later in the speech but specifically in this speech, he tries to divide us against class lines and, and try to treat us as though the rich people are the enemy and the poor people, they're the ones that are just trying to get ahead. And, and we, the, the benevolent Democrats, we're going to help you get there. We don't have a class system in this country. In fact, most people will occupy multiple classes in their lifetime. Just about everybody occupies the low-income earners early on in their career. And then as they get older, they tend to climb there. And when they get really old... Most people, they might regress a little bit because they go on retirement, but the vast majority of people financially are much better off when they're older than they are when they're younger. Uh, I, I believe I saw a statistic just recently that somewhere between 85 to 90% of the entire American population will occupy several different tax brackets as their life goes on. And so there's a lot of economic mobility. Of the 50 richest people in America, only 10 to 15 of those 50 people were there 10 years ago. There's a lot of economic mobility in this country. And so to act as though class is something that is stagnant and never moves like it did in the feudal era, 
is just the result of old and bad policy. It's frankly ancient. It's it's old philosophy, and it's not the way that the world works anymore, which I guess, considering is coming from Joe Biden, really shouldn't be all that surprising, but it comes from younger people like AOC as well. But here's the main thing that Biden missed in that whole thing. He kept saying, well, ask them if they don't want, if, if they want to continue to tax rich people at the rate that they are now, in other words, letting people keep their own money, which is essentially what he was saying, ask them, okay, well, if you don't want to uh, cut taxes for the middle class and, and keep those taxes, who, whose taxes do you want to cut? Whose taxes do you want to increase? Um, no one's. That's what we've been saying this entire time. Republicans aren't saying, let's cut taxes for the upper class so that we can put a larger burden on the middle class. We're saying, cut taxes for everyone. That's the goal. I don't want to increase taxes on the middle class. I want everybody's tax burden to go down to about 10%. Everyone, across the board. Rich people, poor people, doesn't matter. Everybody should be paying roughly 10% of their income. In fact, I'd even be fine with going lower. I just think that 10% is the only reasonable amount. The, the only way that we could get it down. If we could get it lower, I would absolutely be open to that. But no person should be paying more than 10% of their income to the government. And I would be fine with cutting it for everyone. I, I don't want to increase the tax burden on anybody. And so he creates a weird false dichotomy where he's saying, oh, well, if you don't want to raise taxes on the rich, who do you want to raise taxes on? Um, no one. That's what we've been saying this entire time. When the Trump tax cuts came through, you know what it resulted in? About a 2% cut ta uh, rate cut across the board. Everybody's taxes got decreased. Even the farthest left-leaning publications, your New York Times and your Washington Post, had headlines like, face it, you got a tax cut. That was literally something that ran in the New York Times. They said, yeah, for the vast majority of Americans, a little over 80% of the population, your taxes are lower now than they used to be. Even the leftists had to admit that. And that's been the policy for a long time. We want everyone's taxes to go down. But ultimately, it's kind of like an institution like a university. You know, if I were proposing a tuition cut, you're saying, you know what, we don't need all these fancy new buildings, we don't need this campus expansion or whatever in, in this theoretical university that I were running, I'd say, I want to cut tuition for every student so that we can get them more bang for their buck, and we're going to try to continue to offer them a great education, we're just going to do without some of the bells and whistles, and the way that, and the way that we're going to offer them a better value is that we make their tuition lower. If I said that and somebody said, well, what are you going to do? Just increase the, the burden on the tuition burden on poor students? No, I said I want to cut it across the board. I want to cut it for everyone. The way that I'm going to pay for that, which you don't pay for a decrease in income, but whatever. The way that you pay for that is that you also decrease your spending in conjunction with that. Nobody is, is advocating for an increased burden on the middle class. We're just advocating a cut across the board. And the Democrats can continue to lie about that if they want. But I, I really think the reason that Joe Biden can propose all this is he's the apathy. The reason he's able to get through this, if you've ever watched the Ruby series, RWBY, it's a series on Rooster Teeth. Really good, by the way. 
there's a, a group of monsters in this particular series, because it's all about hunting monsters called the Grim, called the Apathy. And the Apathy's ability is they cause people to not care. And so even though these are monsters that, that eat humans, the way that they catch their prey is not because they're fast and not because they overpower them. They have this ability to make their opponent not care about things. It's a really strange concept, but it's actually pretty insightful. And so the way that these things fight and the way that they hunt is that they go around and they cause their, their prey to just be like, oh, it's fine, everything's fine, to the point to the, they even sometimes fall asleep in the middle of combat. And so that's what Joe Biden is. The way he's able to get all these radical policies through is that he is the apathy. He causes people not to care. Because he sort of shields himself and cloaks himself in the veil of moderatism, people are like, oh, what he's doing is fine. Everything's fine. It doesn't matter. I'm just so glad that he's not mean-tweeting people at 3 a.m., which, granted, is nice. But the way that he gets you is that he causes you not to care and then passes through all the radicalism anyway. And so I think it's interesting, and that's a really good analogy it's a really good illustration of what we're talking about here. Because in this series, there's lots of other Grimm that are able to overtake their prey through, you know, being faster or stronger, having sharp fangs or teeth or any of that stuff. But the Apathy don't hunt that way. They're not faster. They're not stronger. They can't overpower their opponents. They just beat them by making them not care what it happens and, and convincing them that everything is okay. That's who Joe Biden is. He causes the American people to just go to sleep, don't worry about it, and then while they're sleeping, passes a lot of his liberal agenda through. That's the reason Joe Biden is so dangerous. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to come back with the Daily Dose of Stupid. We'll be back in just a second on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, again, since uh, this has been the trend lately since we moved to the one-day show, we do have a double dose of the Daily Dose of Stupid. So the first one, this one's really funny. The Democrats are celebrating women, and I'll tell you why that's stupid here in a second. This is the first clip of this. This actually happened at the non-State of the Union address that Joe Biden gave, where he was talking about it, because this was a joint session of Congress, and so the Vice President and the Speaker of the House were there sitting behind him. Anyway, thank you all. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. And this was not the only occasion of somebody on the left doing so. You can see this headline from the Associated Press. Harris Pelosi make history seated behind Biden's speech. And so, of course, the reason that they're doing this, the, the reason that they're making a big deal out of it, is because this has never done, been done before. It is the first time you've had both a female vice president, because it's the first time we've ever had a female vice president, and a female speaker of the House at the same time. 
The problem with that is, I thought women weren't a thing. Isn't that what the Democrat Party has been pushing here recently? That we're all, you know, in some kind of weird binary that doesn't exist, and women are just a social construct, and men can be women, and women can be men, and some men have a uterus, and some women um, have, you know, guy parts, and, and you can be a woman and, you know, still have testicles. You, you can be a woman and still have all the things that men have. And be genetically male and be a woman. And so really, women doesn't mean anything. I love that Matt Walsh, who's a commentator over on the right, he works for the Daily Wire, that he just occasionally, whenever stuff like this comes up, he goes, define women. And it's a good question because they can't define women in a way that doesn't seem transphobic. Because if you do, you seem transphobic, but if you can't define it, then it doesn't mean anything. If anybody can be a woman and anybody can be a man, and this is all just some kind of, what are we doing here? If it's all subjective, then there's no point in even having the term woman. If it's all made up and imaginary and a social construct, then why are you celebrating Kamala Harris and, and Nancy Pelosi being there behind the podium? Now, here's the thing. In a normal reality... I wouldn't have a problem with this. Yeah, I don't like Nancy Pelosi or Kamala Harris's policies, and I wish that somebody else were in their seat. By the way, I voted for Ted Cruz, who picked as his running mate, Carly Fiorina, who would have been the first female vice president had he won that election. Never mind that. Um, and I would be fine with several female speaker, as female members of the House being speakers of the House. I would have been fine with uh, Marsha Blackburn, for example, being a speaker of the House. That would have been okay with me. So it has nothing to do with it. I'm just saying that if we're going by the left standards, why are they celebrating women? Women don't even exist. They're not even real. We, we have generic person A and generic person B, and the only thing that we're actually supposed to see is color, even though I'm, I'm pretty sure that race is a social construct now too, because you have people that can identify as black or identify as Native American or whatever, even if they aren't. And so, if there are no objective standards, I guess it really doesn't matter. But the point is, if that's the case, then why is having Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris back there any different than having Joe Biden and John Boehner back there? Why, why is that an accomplishment? I mean, John Boehner and Joe Biden are women too, right? And so, hasn't this already been done? Why make a big deal out of it? This is what happens when you live in a leftist fantasy world where everything contradicts itself, where there are no objective moral standards. Well, then everything's gobbledygook and it just doesn't matter anymore. So I do find it funny that they're celebrating women, and I don't mind the acknowledgement. I really don't. I just find it completely contradictory to their stated value system. But to be fair, this is not just Democrat pandering. It is a flaw in all transgender logic. The idea that men can be women and women can be men is a flawed premise at its core. And so because of that, error begets error. Everything that you come up with as a result of that is also going to be error. And so this really isn't the Democrats' fault. I mean, it is because they're buying into it. But it isn't the Democrats' fault. They didn't create it, I guess is the best way to say this. They didn't create this behemoth. They just embraced it. But the problem at the core is that 
all logic coming from a starting point of men can be women and women can be men and neither one are actually real. They're all just socially constructed. When you start from that point A, every place you go from that starting point is going to be a logical contradiction of itself. It's impossible to avoid that. And so they're not being bad at logic. They're just starting with a bad ideology that cannot beget anything other than logical error. Now, the other Daily Dose of Stupid I wanted to do for today is about Senator Tim Scott, because as you probably already know and have heard, he's the one that offered the rebuttal of Joe Biden's speech. Now, almost nobody pays attention to the rebuttal. In fact, one of the reasons I find this story so incredibly interesting is that political philosophy for a long time has been the best possible thing that you can hope for in a State of the Union or this non-State of the Union rebuttal. The best thing that you can hope for as the opposing party is to be ignored. Because if people pay attention to the rebuttal, it means something really weird or stupid happened. Case in point, Marco Rubio looked really weird and really nervous and took a drink of water in the middle of his speech. And because of that, he caught a lot of flack for it. It hurt his political career to give that rebuttal. Now, Bobby Jindal gave a fantastic rebuttal, did a really great speech, and nobody noticed. It doesn't matter how good a job you do, because I thought that was a fantastic speech. In fact, if you get a chance, go look it up. But he gave just a fantastic rebuttal to one of Barack Obama's speeches, and nobody noticed. And so generally speaking, the thing that you are hoping for the most is that nobody notices your rebuttal speech. That's not what happened with Tim Scott. In fact, what you've seen in the subsequent days here, and and it's been an interesting few days watching this, is you've watched the Democrats come out and trending with Uncle Tim on Twitter. In other words, a, a playoff of Uncle Tom. So, uh... It's, it's interesting because they took issue specifically with Tim Scott saying America is not a racist country. He said that, yeah, we've had problems, but at the end of the day, we are not a racist country. He, he's saying this as the progeny of sharecroppers who is now sitting just a couple of generations later as a member of Un the United States Congress. I mean, Senator Scott has some room to talk here. <laughs> He's looking at this and saying, yeah, I rose to power pretty quickly. This is not a racist country. This is a nation that overwhelmingly, even though I didn't agree with this decision, elected a black man as our leader twice just a few years ago. And it wasn't even close. I mean, he shellacked McCain and Romney. A large portion of the population voted for Barack Obama. And I guarantee you that if you switched it, if you had a Ben Carson or a Herman Cain running for president, if they had won the primary, you would have had just as many, if not more, Republicans voting for that guy. This is not a country. There are racists in the country. Sure, that's true of every country. But as a whole, systematically, we are not a racist country. And that's what Tim Scott spoke to. He was 100% right on that. But the Democrats proved him wrong. I know that's going to surprise some people to hear me say that, but the Democrats proved him wrong. America is a racist country. And the way they proved him wrong is that they were racist in response to his speech. 
It's a weird way to one-up somebody. But they're like, oh yeah, you're going to say that America is not a racist country? Well, hashtag Uncle Tim. We're going to be racist and, and hurl racist epithets at you. Um, racist stereotypes at you to prove that America is indeed a racist country. Which should surprise nobody because Democrats have always been the party of racism. They've been the party of Jim Crow. They've been the party of George Wallace. They've been the party of slavery, the party of the Confederacy, the party of the Klan. I mean, yeah, it shouldn't surprise anybody. The Democrats are, oh, Tim Scott, you think there's not any racism in the country? Oh, we'll prove you wrong by all coming out on Twitter and, and hurling racial <laughs> slurs at you. I guess they got him. I mean, yeah, they they kind of did prove him wrong in a weird roundabout way. And by the way, this was not just limited to randos on Twitter. This was coming from Joy Reid, one of the uh, one of the talking heads on MSNBC. I was surprised, to be honest with you. This was standard Republican pabulum. This could have been delivered by Tom Cotton or Mike Lee. America's not a racist country. There's no racism here. It's, it, I'm not sure what the purpose of this was. I, his audience to me appeared to be conservative, uh, white Republicans who were angry over certain things of cancel culture and the same sort of cultural nods that we hear on Fox News. And he was out here to throw them a lifeline. It was disappointing. Now, I want you to listen to what she just said. Her biggest issue was with him saying that America is not a racist country. This is something that bothered her. And it's because Joy Reid wants America to be a racist country. She desperately needs America to be a racist country. Why? Because if America is not a racist country, then a lot of her stupid progressive policies make no sense. A lot of the people that she is advocating, that people that she likes, that they need to be elected, then a lot of the things that they're saying are not true. And the things that they are saying, this is the reason you should elect me, is based on lies. That's why Joy Reid needs America to be racist, desperately. Just like in economics, the desire, in other words, the demand for racism far outseed, uh, out, wow, having a Joe Biden moment there. Um, the desire for America to be a racist country, the desire for actual racism in America, the demand for it, far exceeds the actual supply. They desperately need America to be racist because that's what their whole shtick is based upon. In the same way that an umbrella salesman must have rain. The worst thing that could happen to an umbrella salesman is a dry spell, a drought. That doesn't work for him because nobody buys umbrellas when there's no rain. Just like that, the race baiters need racism to exist. Because if there is no racism and nobody believes that there is racism, then Al Sharpton's out of a job. Then a lot of the people that are like Joy Reid and other people that she politically aligns herself with are also out of a job because they got elected based on the premise that America is a deeply racist country that is trying to keep certain people down. It's not true. But if that's the only way you can get elected, that's what you're going to say. That's what you're going to perpetuate. And that's why it bothered her to see somebody that would be supposedly be the victim of racism saying, oh, America's not a racist country. There's racist here. Yeah, we occasionally have 
a racist person that doesn't like black people. But it's not common. It's not systematic. Overall, America is a fair country. That's all Tim Scott was saying, and that bothers Joy Reid because it undercuts her entire political narrative. And I love the fact that she's like, well, Cotton or or Lee could have delivered this. Why why couldn't Tom Cotton or or Tim or Tim Lee, (laughs) Mike Lee, deliver this? See, it bothered her that a black man was saying it. This is the reason that people on the left have a special hatred in their heart for black conservatives. They can't stand Clarence Thomas, Herman Cain. Uh, they, they really can't stand Candace Owens. I mean, she's the one that they probably hate the most. And it's because it undercuts their narrative to see somebody that, in their mind, should be a member of the victim class and on their side say, no, I, I'm, I'm a member of that race, and no, America is not a racist country. It undercuts their claims. And that's why it bothers them so much. That and they also think like tribalists. And because they think like tribalists, they think, well, every member of our tribe should be on our side. They should be a a good member of the tribe. In their mind, that's like somebody in their tribe betraying them. This is the reason that people were calling Tim Scott on Twitter a race traitor. Because they think everybody in the tribe is supposed to be uniform. That's what tribalism is. There is an us and then there's a them. And if you are supposed to be an us, but instead you're a them, then we must alienate you and hate you even more because you're a traitor to our tribe. But a normal person just sees people as people. You're not a member of a tribe. You're just a person. You're just you. And they see people as individuals. But that really is what it all boils down to, right? She assumes that this can't actually be what he believes because he's black. That was the point that she was making. She's saying, oh, Tim Scott doesn't actually believe that there is no racism in the country or that America is not a racist country. He actually knows that there is racism, but because he has conservative friends that are asking him to say this, that's why he's actually saying this. They're saying that he's just becoming a mouthpiece for them. He doesn't actually believe those things. He's just, you know, going out there and saying it because that's what white people want him to say. That he's offering them an escape. Um, or it could be that he genuinely believes that. And that's one thing that is a difference between the right and the left. When I see somebody on the left that says something, I do not assume that they are just saying what the people on the left want them to say. I assume that they believe it. Now, they may believe it because somebody on the left said it, But I just kind of work from the assumption that people do genuinely believe what they are saying. The left doesn't. They see somebody that is a member of the tribe that's supposed to be on their side. And they think, oh, they must really think the way that I do because they're a member of my tribe. And that's how I think. Therefore, they must think that too. But they're just being disingenuous or or doing because they're they're evil, bad traitors. Uh, I've heard this thousands of times with Democrats saying the same thing about women that Women are only doing this. You heard Hillary Clinton say this, that they're only doing that because their husbands told them that that's the way they have to vote or that that's the thing that they have to believe. Which to me seemed real sexist that she just believes that every woman that doesn't agree with her is only doing so and only disagrees with her specifically because she is too weak mind to make her own decisions and, and to actually come to a conclusion that differs from Hillary Clinton's opinion. It's sad, but it is the truth. That's that's how they think of people. 
And ultimately, this is the problem that we run into, isn't it? That Joy Reid and other people like her just can't understand why somebody that is a member of their tribe would do something that in their mind is a violation of that tribe, and so they see them as a traitor, and that inspires a greater hatred of that person in them. And so the roundabout effect, even though they didn't use the same logic that what we would traditionally consider a racist used to get there, it's the opposite effect, but it's the same result. Or sorry, it's, it's the same effect. It's just a different means to get there. They wind up hating black conservatives more than they would hate a white conservative. Ergo, they themselves are racist. There is an extra hatred there because of their skin color. And isn't that what racism is? They're not just racist against white people, they're also racist against other black people that don't agree with them. And that truly is sad. But this is exactly what you want politically. And this is why I think that this was such a brilliant move. This kind of goes back to where I, I started out this conversation. Usually, the best thing that you can hope for is to be ignored when you're talking about these rebuttal speeches. The best possible outcome is that nobody remembers the rebuttal speech two days later. We're still talking about this, and people on national news media are still talking about this speech. Because of the reaction, I don't know who at the GOP came up with Tim Scott doing the rebuttal, but I would have advised them not to do it. Because I was thinking the way that traditionally you're supposed to think about these things, which is, you're wanting it to be somebody that can't be politically injured. You're wanting it to be somebody that's kind of a throwaway person that if they do screw up or, or make some kind of big mistake that we haven't lost an asset would be a good way to describe it because it's it's very high risk and virtually no reward. Tim Scott flipped that on its head. He actually got a reward out of it, which is he drew the foul. So if you're a, a basketball fan, you understand what this is. Sometimes you put a player in specifically because they're good at drawing fouls. You want somebody to foul that person so that they can make the free throw. Now, to be clear, it's not just drawing the foul, because you still got to sink the free throws. Luckily, Tim Scott was skilled enough to do that. So yes, he drew the foul, but he also did a killer speech. And that is the reason that this wound up being as good as it was. He actually scored political points on a rebuttal speech. Do you have any idea how hard that is to do? Nobody does that because no one watches the rebuttal speech. And yet Tim Scott turned the most memorable part of the night, not what the president was doing on stage, but instead it was about the Democrats being racist against Tim Scott. And the reason that this was political gold is because the average moderate voter hates this crap. They do. They despise it. They don't like the racial stuff. Conservatives don't, but we expect them not to. I mean, their political ideology aligns with people like Dr. Martin Luther King that treats people like individuals. And so we expect them to hate that crap. But the truth is, even moderate suburban voters, they hate the racial crap too. They're tired of it. They want it to be gone now. BLM dropped like a rock in political approval over the span of just a few weeks. And its approval is you know, really low right now. Democrats pretty much approve of it, but very few people outside of the ideological left do still approve of Black Lives Matter. America's tired of the racial division. And all this did 
was absolutely destroy the Democrat Party. Now, it's a short news cycle. There's not an election coming up in the next few weeks. So does it have a lasting effect? I don't know. Probably not. But the truth is, if we continue to do this, if Democrats continue to push this insane, woke, leftist, racist crap, and continue to push this idea that America is a deeply racist country, you're going to see a red wave like we've never seen before. You're going to see a red tsunami. And they're going to be able to take the House and the Senate pretty darn easily. Uh, Especially with Biden's low approval at this point in his presidency, we're going to see a a, a, probably a record-setting election if this becomes what the left tries to run on. Even people like Stacey Abrams have started to back off on this stuff because they see how politically poisonous it is. So props to Senator Tim Scott. He drew the foul. He sunk both free throws, scored one for the team. Good job, man. I wish people were paying attention to this because if the Dems do this, they are going to lose both houses and it's going to be a glorious midterm election. I hope that it is. Let's go on to the chaplain's report. In 1775... The Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our little series in 1 Samuel. And to get you caught up to speed on what's been happening while we were gone, Saul has now threatened his own men. That was what happened in the last passage that we looked at. Saul has essentially threatened his own men because he's so angry about the fact that David has been able to escape his grasp. So David's on the run, Saul is pursuing him, and Saul is now saying, ah, you guys are all against me, nobody's for me, I'm having to fight even my own troops when it comes to David, and he accuses them of disloyalty, and basically threatens them if somebody doesn't come up with some information he can use to try to track David down. And there is one soldier that is within earshot of this named Doeg, who speaks up and tells Saul about the priest helping him. You remember that little episode that we just went through? where the priest gave his men showbread and uh, because they, they needed something to eat and also gave David the sword of Goliath and so armed him and gave him food and then David slipped off and went on his merry way. So Doeg apparently found out about this and he tells Saul about it and so that's really where we start tonight in 1 Samuel 22 verses 12 through 19 which reads, Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub, And he replied, by the way, this is him talking to the priest here. Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech, he's the priest, answered the king and said, And who among all of your servants is as faithful as David, the king's own son-in-law, who is commander over your bodyguard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything against his servant or against any of the household of my father, 
because your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, You shall certainly die, Ahimelech, and you and all of your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put these priests of the Lord to death, because their hand is also with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not inform me. But the servants of the king were unwilling to reach out with their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest. And he killed on that day eighty-five men who wore the linen ephod. He also struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants. He also struck oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. A couple of really interesting things that jump out at me about this subject. Do you remember why the blessing was taken from Saul, why he is no longer king? If you remember, he was supposed to destroy the Agites. He was supposed to take them all down and destroy them utterly. But what happened is he kept the king, Agag, he hung on to him, didn't kill him, just brought him back as a prisoner. And he hung on to all the best livestock, didn't kill them either. So when God told him to do something, he decided, well, it's really kind of more of a guideline. But when this event happens, Saul takes to the city just because someone helped David. And remember, like the priest said in that passage, David is the king's son-in-law. He is the commander of his own bodyguard. He is a soldier for Israel, a member of Saul's forces. Any rational person would look at that and say, helping out David is the same as being loyal to Saul, because that would make sense. I am helping David, who is Saul's servant, and works as his own bodyguard and is related to him by marriage. And yet, for this, Saul kills him, kills all the priests around him that also helped David, and killed people of the city that he was living in at the time. Took out women, children, infants, and utterly destroyed them. So he did to that city what God commanded him to do to God's enemies. Saul's paranoia and mania has reached a level that he feels justified in killing innocent women and children to get what he wants. And not foreign, as bad as that would be, not foreign women, not foreign people, Israelites, the very people that God has given him the responsibility of taking care of. So when God tells him to do something, oh, that, that's just too hard for me to do. But when I want to do exactly the same thing against my own people because it suits my desires and my goals, well, then all of a sudden he's more than willing to utterly destroy his own people. That's how far down this road of darkness Saul has gone. And the thing that's really sad here is that even his own people recognize that Saul has gone way too far here. 
Saul gives them an order, and, and this is a military. Orders are pretty darn serious in a military setting. Saul, who is a king, not, a, not just a general, but a king, has given them a direct order to do something, and they all stand around and go, uh, not me. They know that that can cost them their lives, and they are still so fearful of God's wrath. Probably not necessarily all that reputable people, but even they recognize you don't go attacking God's priests. And Saul doesn't get that. Saul has elevated himself above God. Think about that. When he desires something, or when it's his turn to take vengeance on people that he considers his enemies, even if they're not, that's perfectly justified and he doesn't hesitate for a second. When God says, these people are my enemies, you are my appointed king, you go take them out, Saul goes, eh. Saul has not just made himself equal with God, he has elevated himself past God in his own mind. If you want to know why Saul was unfit to be king, that's all the reason you need right there. He has completely abandoned any sense of reverence or subjugation to God's will. All he cares about is maintaining his own power. And he is willing to kill innocent people to do it. Not just David, but just people that may have helped David out or may have known about where David was and didn't inform him. Even though that David, at this point, is still his relative and a member of his own military. He still sees this as disloyalty worthy of death. You know the verse in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about being judged by the same measure by which you judge? Rest assured, this is what happened when Saul met his Creator. That this is the conversation that God had with Saul when he died and, and was judged by him. That he's saying, you showed no mercy to people that did you no wrong. Why should I show mercy to you who deliberately disobeyed me and rebelled against me? And what's important and, and profound about that is, what's that conversation going to look like for us? How often, and I'm saying this because I'm guilty of it too, how often have we looked at the thing that we wanted and knew that it contradicted what God wanted and just said, yeah, we'll, we'll do the thing that we want. Yeah, that, that seems like a reasonable proposition to me, or even justified it in our own heads that what we wanted was justified, but what God wanted or what God commanded us to do, that's just a real heavy lift, and I just really want to, don't want to deal with it right now. How often has that been the case for us? Because I know in my life, I hate to admit it, but it's been pretty common. It has not been a terribly rare occurrence that I put what I want ahead of what God wants, and that I look at my desires as being more important than what God desires for me to do. But to put into context exactly what's going on here, the priest doing this that defends himself, it seems that he did know that there was some conflict going on with David and Saul. But would he have really known that Saul would have considered, even in his wildest dreams, showing kindness to David, his general, 
arguably his top general as being something that would have been a disloyalty to Saul himself. I mean, to, to help us understand it, this would be like a somebody showing kindness to um, General Eisenhower in World War II and FDR being very mad at them for helping out Eisenhower. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That guy's on your team. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be helping you too? But this is the logic that Saul has fallen into because of his mania and his own lust after power. But I think it's always important to ask why. Why would Saul do this? Were the priests a threat to him? Was he afraid that there was going to be some kind of priest rebellion where they come out against Saul? I don't think for a second that that's what Saul was concerned about. I don't. I think that the reason that Saul was concerned about this, the reason that Saul decided that this was the correct course of action, is because he is so incredibly power-hungry, he was sending out a message to everybody else. That if you ally yourself with David, you are putting yourself in my crosshairs. Anybody that helps David out, anybody that gives him aid or comfort, is considered an enemy of the state, and I will destroy them. That's why Saul did this. He wasn't afraid of the city being rebellious against him. I don't think that he believed that for a second. What he was afraid of was David, and David taking his crown. And because of that, he was fine with just killing innocent people as pawns in his political game to make sure that nobody else helped David outside of Israel. And we'll see in the subsequent passages, we won't go there yet, but we'll see in the subsequent passages because of this, what David does is hide his family outside of Israel. He wants to make sure they can't be used as leverage against him because now he's saying, Saul's not only after me, he's after anybody that even helps me. And after that point, David hides outside of Israel so that nobody that he is, is living with and living amongst at the time is killed because of Saul. He no longer stays in Israel or with Israelites. They don't give him any aid after this point. He only works with people outside of Israel because that way Saul can't get to them, or at least not without a fight. It's really sad to see this situation, but this is really where we, we have reached in, the, in this part of the story. And I think that that's also a powerful warning to us, too. Because Saul's hatred has now reached the point to where it's so powerful, it's transferable. That his hatred of David has so blinded him to everything else that he doesn't just hate David, he hates everybody associated with David. He hates everybody that might have been nice to David or helped David. And I think that people in our day-to-day -day lives, with less drastic results, of course that we kind of come to the same thing, don't we? Is this not a common thing with us that, that we hate somebody and, and we can reach a point to where we hate them so much that we hate people around them, we hate their friends, we hate their family, we hate other people sort of in their orbit? We hate people and we hate that other people don't hate that person too. Honestly, I think a lot of the, the things that we have found ourselves in with tribalism and and trying to create class struggle and race struggle in our country is because of that very principle. We hate some people that fit this demographic or this tribe or whatever, and because of that, we've transferred our hate to everybody in that group. I mean, that's what racism and tribalism is. 
it's hating one person or one particular part of that person, one aspect of them, and then sort of projecting that onto everybody else that shares that characteristic. You know, I think that's why tribalism is so dangerous. Why thinking of people as groups is so dangerous. Because when that happens, you can hate people you've never even met. You can hate people simply for existing. You can hate people that have never done you any harm and want to harm them despite them never doing you any harm. And that's the point that Saul has reached here. That anybody that even doesn't hate David as much as me must be the enemy, and I must destroy them. There's a lot of people that do this with politics today. There's a lot of people that take the stance, if you're not for me, you're against me, and if you're against me, I must destroy you. You are the enemy. And there's people that do it on the right and people that do it on the left. I mean, it, it's just the way that it is now, and it's sadly become our political reality. That if that's somebody that's a conservative, I have to hate them because I hate all conservatives. If that's somebody that's on the left, they must be trying to destroy this country and I must hate them because they're a liberal. I'm, I'm sorry, but there's nothing in the Bible that advocates for that. It advocates for certain things, and it advocates for us standing against evil when we see it crop up, but it never advocates for hurt, hurting, sorry, hating people just because they belong to one specific group. In fact, it, it pretty often preaches against that. And I want you to think about that, because that's the inverse of tribalism, isn't it? If tribalism is projecting hatred onto other people, to where you can hate people you've never even met, God's way is the exact opposite. Love people you've never even met. Love everybody because they're all part of one group, the one group that God created, the human race. They're all my children. They all came from Adam. I formed each one of them in the womb individually. I know them. I love them. I gave my life for them. You do the same. That's what Christianity is. It is the ability to love a person that you've never met, that you have no association with, that you know nothing about, don't know their face, their name, anything. And you love them simply by virtue of being another one of God's children. Even if they're not a Christian, that love is supposed to be there because that's the love that Jesus Christ had for them when he died on a cross for their sins. That's the opposite of tribalism. That you love everybody because we're all part of one tribe, God's children. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delrada Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.